Okay. Here's the deal. This morning, we're going to do something a little different uh, than usual because the passage we have this morning is a little different than what we usually have. And uh, so I'm going to issue a content warning. We normally don't do that when it comes to the Bible, but I tell people a lot, the Bible is not rated PG. (laughs) And this morning, we're actually going to get into a story uh, that if you have never read the Bible for yourself, you've only uh, encountered it through sermons, you've probably never heard this passage. Um, but if you have read the Bible for yourself, you, have probably are, you probably are familiar with the passage and maybe a bit bothered by it or confused by it. Anyway, so we will go into that. But here's the, the warning up ahead of time, is uh, we will be dealing with issues of a violent and sexual nature, and so for those who are younger parents uh, and those who grandparents who brought grandkids, if these are issues that we're going to be talking about, maybe pretty graphically, <laughs> if that's stuff that uh, you want to talk about at home, then you stay in here and listen, and then you guys can talk about that later uh, when you feel like your kids are ready for that. Otherwise, uh, Miss Kelly is going to take the young ones um, and out to her class where she has another lesson for them for the remainder of the service. So here's how we're going to do this. We're going to go ahead and have a, our children's sermon. I'll bring you forward for that. And then, um, and then parents will direct you if you're going back to your pew or if you're going to follow Miss Kelly out from there. Um, so go ahead and come on down, kids. Good morning. How you doing? Good. Good morning. You have a seat. All right. Very good. All right. We're also going to do something a little different in that we're going to do our uh, gospel reading while y'all are still here. Uh, so if any of you are leaving, you don't miss that. And here is, uh, go ahead and pull that up on the screen. Um, but before we read it, I want to build something. Yeah, because sometimes you got to do that, right? So I'm going to build this, get where you can see. We're going to build this little pyramid. Kind of all. Mm-hmm. Oh. It is kind of hard. You want to help me? There you go. Oh, thank you. There we go. Where did that one go? Okay. And then maybe one more. All right. So now, well, <laughs> that would be a trick. Um, all right. That was pretty neat, right? We built our lovely little pyramid. Um so, does anybody feel like you want to just knock it down? Don't knock it down. Don't knock it down. But you want to, don't you? Wouldn't that be fun? Yeah, I want to knock it down. What if instead of knocking it down, we just built another one? You want to do that instead? Yeah. All right, let's build another one. Let's do one. Oh, uh-oh. Uh-oh. Can we build another Let's build another one. Let's make a big one. There you go. Yeah, you help me. 
I know I made it sound like we had other things we're going to do today, but this is it now. There. Oh, okay, there we go. All right. Does it go over in the middle? Ooh, that's tricky. There we go. Oh, very nice. Okay, we have the top one. The top one? All right. So what do you think? Is it is it pretty fun to build these? Yeah. Is it also pretty fun to knock it down? Yeah. Oh, it is, isn't it? Wait, don't knock it down. Okay, tell you what. Tell you what. Only knock it down if I say to. How about that? Not until I say. Okay, knock it down. <laughs> all right, go ahead and collect all these. Thank you. All right. <laughs> so glad you guys were here for this one. This is, you were very, very helpful. Really? I know it is. My name's Lindsay and that's Jackson. Yes. Really? All right. Well, here we have what I was going to read to you from Mark. Well, let's leave those there. This is Mark chapter 3. Go ahead and put that up, Andrew. And it says, Another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Can you imagine that? A man with a shriveled hand. And some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Hmm. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? What do you think? Which one should people be doing? Save life or kill? What do you think? Save life or kill? Save life, okay. And do good or do evil? Which one? Do good. Okay. See, you guys know this, right? You know this. Jesus asked them, you know what they said? Good. It said, they remained silent. What? He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. So now how do you think the crowds are going to be? you think they're going to be real excited about that? Well, it says, Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. What? What? That is not the right response at all, is it? Did you really? Yeah. Well, I'm glad you came today. We can talk about that. So here's the deal. When we were building our cups and we made those towers we said you know it's it's fun to do both right it's kind of fun to build it up and it's also fun to knock it down but sometimes we just really feel like knocking it down don't we i think that's what was going on with these guys that jesus was saying which is better with a person to build them up or to tear them down and they didn't want to answer because what they wanted to do and what they felt like doing was tearing down but they were not supposed to do that were they no, because God has said that's right. And so God's like, don't tear it down unless I tell you to. And they're like, we just can't help it. <laughs> right. So they teared it down. Yep. And and uh, 
So hopefully, we'll remember this about the cups, remember this about what these people did with Jesus and this guy, but we'll also remember what Jesus did, which he puts it right in front of us and say, well, think about it. Which one is better to do? And then he shows us. He sure can. Isn't that cool? All right. (laughs) Let's pray. There we go. You are correct. I know. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. And God, we thank you for um, for letting us know what is good and right to do and also warning us against the things that uh, we know are not right to do, even when we really feel like doing them anyway. God, we pray that you would help us to follow you and your ways. Help us to be those who are looking to save life and to heal people and to build them up rather than those who are looking to tear them down uh, and destroy their lives in so many different ways. God, help us to follow you in everything. We thank you for loving us in Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, my builder, he climbed up, he climbed up our shelf and like got PJs. <laughs> All right. Go check with your parents and see if you're going back to your pew or if you're going to follow Miss Kelly to her class. All right. And don't forget your backpack. You can take the cups, yes. You can. You can totally do that. I don't know when that will be. (laughs) Okay, yeah, yeah, that'd be great. All right. You have heard already, I hope you were listening for the gospel reading. Uh, Our New Testament reading is from 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10. Uh, Before we read this, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made, and we thank you for your word that you've given to us, and we pray that you would give us ears to hear. God, help us to understand um, better who you are and how we are to relate to you and how we are to, uh, to show you to the world, not who we think you are, but who you really are. God, we pray that you would help us in this regard as we come to know you better uh, through your word and through your spirit. And God, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Paul writes uh, to the church in Corinth, For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. So that which is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and we prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. This is the word of the Lord. Let's be to God. All right. Uh, 
If your curiosity has not been piqued to this point in the sermon, you have not, or in the service, you have not been paying attention. Um, because very rare is the sermon that comes with a content warning, but here we have it this morning. Uh, the reason for this is we are looking at Genesis chapter 34, uh, the whole thing, verses 1 through 31. And uh, it does deal with some pretty dicey topics. And, uh, and yet, it is in the Bible for a reason. And so we are going to, we've been just going through the book of Genesis and uh, following the story. And as we've mentioned from the beginning of this whole series, we cannot address every uh, question or uh, hit every point that comes up in these. But what we're trying to do is follow the big, um, the big story as we go through and make sure that we are understanding uh, what it is that God is communicating to his people as we see how he works with them uh, through this whole uh, record we have in Genesis. So um, where we are in the story at this point is uh, God has come to Abraham and said, I'm going to uh, make your name great. I'm going to bless you. You're going to be a blessing. And in fact, all the nations in the world are going to be blessed through you. And so we've been following his family as God has continued to work with him and with his family. And we have seen with Abraham and with his son Isaac and then with his son Jacob uh, how God has been continuing to work with them, not necessarily because they have been doing everything right. They have not been following him uh, as best as they could. And yet God has made promises that he is continuing to be faithful to. Um. Jacob had gone away due to actions of his own and needed to flee so his brother didn't kill him and was gone for a long time. He finally came back 20 years later, and this is what we looked at last week, is Jacob returning and meeting up with his brother Esau after being gone for a long time. And uh, just when it looked like there might be genuine, real reconciliation, we also saw that while that seemed to be extended from Esau, that Jacob seemed to still be a little untrusting and a little skeptical of actual reconciliation. And we said that it's probably due more to Jacob, what's going on in, within Jacob rather than anything going on with Esau. And so we see that even after this time of reunion, um, Jacob says we're going to go the same place, and instead he goes the other direction and sets up somewhere else. This is where we pick up the story that Jacob and his family are now in, uh, in the land, but not around his brother Esau. And uh, see how things go. Chapter 34 says, Now Dinah, the daughter, of, the daughter Leah had born to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. When Shechem, son of Hamor the Hivite, ruler of that area, saw her, he took her and raped her. His heart was drawn to Dinah, daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. And Shechem said to his father, Hamor, Get me this girl as my wife. When Jacob heard that his daughter Dinah had been defiled, his sons were in the fields with his livestock. So he did nothing about it until they came home. Then Shechem's father, Hamor, went out to talk with Jacob. Meanwhile, Jacob's sons had come in from the fields as soon as they heard what had happened. They were shocked and furious because Shechem had done an outrageous thing in Israel by sleeping with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. But Hamor said to them, My son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. 
Please give her to him as his wife. Intermarry with us. Give us your daughters and take our daughters for yourselves. You can settle among us. The land is open to you. Live in it, trade in it, and acquire property in it. Then Shechem said to Dinah's father and brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and I will give you whatever you ask. Make the price for the bride and the gift I am to bring as great as you like, and I'll pay whatever you ask me. Only give me the young woman as my wife. Because their sister Dinah had been defiled, Jacob's sons replied deceitfully as they spoke to Shechem and his father, Hamor. They said to them, We can't do such a thing. We can't give our sister to a man who is not circumcised. That would be a disgrace to us. We will enter into an agreement with you on one condition only, that you become like us by circumcising all your males. Then we will give you our daughters and take your daughters for ourselves. We'll settle among you and become one people with you. But if you will not agree to be circumcised, we'll take our sister and go. Their proposal seemed good to Hamor and his son Shechem. The young man, who was the most honored of all his, family's fa- all his father's family, lost no time in doing what they said because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. So Hamor and his son Shechem went to the gate of their city to speak to the men of their city. These men are friendly toward us, they said. Let them live in our land and trade in it. The land has plenty of room for them. We can marry their daughters and they can marry ours. But the men will agree to live with us as one people only on the condition that our males be circumcised as they themselves are. Won't their livestock, their property, and all their other animals become ours? So let's agree to their terms and they will settle among us. All the men who went out of the city gate agreed with Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male in the city was circumcised. Three days later, while all of them were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. They put Hamor and his son Shechem to the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and left. The sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies and looted the city where their sister had been defiled. They seized their flocks and herds and donkeys and everything else of theirs in the city and out in the fields. They carried off all their wealth and all their women and children, taking as plunder everything in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me obnoxious to the Canaanites and Perizzites, the people living in this land. We are few in number, and if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. But they replied, Should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? And that's where it ends. And as I have jokingly said a lot through Genesis, go therefore and do likewise. (laughs) My goodness. This is not um, that kind of passage, is it? Where you get the, here's what you are to go and do, now go and do it. (laughs) But hopefully you see this is, um, this is not something that we're supposed to just copy like this, but I think we are supposed to learn from it. The question is, what are we to learn from it? So first, let's just make sure that we are understanding what's happening in this story. I think you follow along. That basically, uh, they are in the land, and Dinah goes out to visit the women of the land, and one of the princes of the land sees her is, uh, what is the kind of the biblical pattern where he sees, he desires, and he takes. (laughs) That's what he does. And um, by the way, it's not a a good biblical pattern. That is a negative biblical pattern. One that we see over and over, even from the Garden of Eden. But this is what he does. And he, so he rapes her. And then as the, um, 
as the story continues, he decides, well, I, I would like to marry her. And so he asks his dad, hey, why don't you make that happen? So he goes to make this arranged marriage, which is common in the day, and goes to talk to Jacob about it. Meanwhile, Jacob has heard about what's happened, and what's he do about it? Nothing. And then the sons come in, and they hear what's happened about it, and they are furious about what has happened to their sister. And so they decide to take action, unlike their father. And so what is the action they take? They lie to the people and say, look, you can marry her if you get circumcised and everybody else gets circumcised. We do that, then you can marry her. Is, is that actually how it goes, though? No. The other uh, the people say, okay, we'll get circumcised. They do. And then Simeon and Levi come in, and while the people are still in pain, they slaughter them all. They steal all of their uh, property. They take their property. Uh, women and children who are now widows and fatherless. And they come back to Jacob, who says, that was a bad idea. Now you have made it to where we are obnoxious to the people around here. And you think, well, wait a second. Isn't that what they were supposed to do? Weren't they supposed to come into this land and be obnoxious? to? No, that wasn't it, was it? They were supposed to be a blessing to the whole world. So Jacob says, you've made me obnoxious to all of them. And then they respond by saying, well, should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? And we hear this story. And I think sometimes the way that we hear the story, and maybe you've never heard this story before, so this is hitting you for the first time fresh. I think sometimes we hear this story and we hear it with sort of this um, visceral catharsis of that's what they get. No, they shouldn't be doing that, and so that's what they get. And, um, and we actually have a lot of movies that follow this plot line, don't we? You can probably think of some revenge movies that are very, very close to this, where it is some uh, family member or loved one that something is done to them, whether they are murdered, whether they are raped, whether they are uh, stolen, whatever it is. And then we have some other member of the family who is going to rise up on their behalf and they just go out and kill a bunch of people. And we watch this and we're like, yeah, get them. That's what they get for doing what they did. You know what I'm talking about, right? You seen any of these movies ever? You seen lots of these movies because it's a pretty common <laughs> storyline? It is. Here's what's weird. Is that this storyline is in the Bible and it is... Uh, we are not very many generations from Abraham and from that promise that God has made to them that they are going to be a blessing to the whole world. And then we see them acting like this. And so, we, so it's easy to look at this and go, okay, so they're doing right because they're in the Bible and they're the people of God. And so we should just do like they do, right? Just copy what they did. No. And this is one of the things that we have been looking at all the way through Uh, Genesis is just because it's in the Bible does not mean it's there for us to copy, though it is there for us to learn from, not necessarily for us to copy. And I think this is one of those that we are not supposed to be copying. However, then you have that question that hangs at the end. You go, but should he have treated our daughter, her sister like a prostitute? And what's the answer to that? Well, no, he should not have, right? 
that what he did was wrong. And what they did did not undo that wrong, but merely added more wrong to the wrong that had been done. But do you see the pattern that they are in mentally of excusing what they are doing because somebody else has done wrong? You ever find yourself doing that? How many times have you, uh, <laughs> have you tried to break up an argument or a fight between kids and you say, hey, quit doing what you're doing, and the response you get is not I'm sorry, but, but what they did was, right? This is from children we do this. When you were growing up as a child, you probably did the same thing. And now as an adult, thank goodness, you never, ever do it ever again. Or maybe we still do. Maybe we still look for ways to justify our bad behavior by looking at somebody else's bad behavior and say, well, what they did, well, they did this. So, you know, I had to do something. And so uh, this is. And here's what I find really interesting about this passage. I think it shows us several uh, false dichotomies, and it doesn't give us the answers that we're looking for. Here's what I mean by that. It gives us this false dichotomy. It sets up these two things, this, this false choice between two things, and says, okay, Jacob finds out what happened to his daughter, and he does nothing. His sons find out what, uh, <laughs> what happened, and they slaughter a community. There you go. Which, which way was right? Which one should have been done? But as I say, it's a false choice, isn't it? But I think either of them, uh, this is, we get these false choices all the time. Either of them would look at the other one and say, well, your way is clearly not the way to do it. That makes my way right. Oh, we do that all the time too, don't we? We come up with these false choices between two actions and we say, well, it's either this or it's that. There are no other options and your option is clearly wrong. Therefore, mine must be right. What if they're both wrong? What if there's another option that we're just not seeing? And I think that is what is going on in this passage. And I think that is where the... uh, where as we read this, that's what we're supposed to get to. That I think we're supposed to be caught in this hard situation where we say, okay, we see what happened to her, and that was wrong. It was clearly wrong. I've heard people who try to kind of justify what happened, and well, it wasn't really that he did so wrong. It was that, no, it is clearly painted as what he did was wrong. But then, how do you deal with it? By doing nothing? By slaughtering a community. And I think we're supposed to be hit by that and go, well, not that one. So it must be, well, no, not that one. So it must be, well, no, not that one. And we're supposed to get caught there. (laughs) Because I think that's the question we're supposed to be asking is, so then what then? Is there another option? Is there another way? Is there a way that actually addresses the problem without just committing the same sin? Think about this. Think about the parallelism between what happened, with what Shechem did to Dinah, and what Simeon and Levi did to the whole tribe of Shechemites. What was it that, uh, that Shechem was guilty of? Making a wrong decision because of how strongly he felt, right? 
And so he took action that followed this strong feeling, even though that was not the right action to take. Well, what did they do? What did Simeon and Levi do? Well, they took action based on a strong feeling they had, even though it was not the right action to take. And when you start looking at it like this, you go, wait a second. They are no more innocent than he is. And in fact, as bad as what he did was, and it was, at least that bad was limited in scope, whereas what they did just carried on. I mean, think about it this way. You can imagine, you know, we kind of cheer this sort of thing on when we watch these movies and we're like, yeah, get them. That's what they had coming. But think about it. Say you're one of the, you just flip it around the other way. You're not Shechem. You're just somebody in his family, somebody in this tribe. Now, how do you feel about the whole situation? It's not one you want to cheer on at all, is it? In fact, for those living around there, anybody watching this scene play out, who are they going to say are the good guys and who are the bad guys? Ugh. This is what Jacob recognizes. He's like, we're going to be the bad guys. That's what it is. Everybody's going to look at us and say they're the bad guys. Certainly not what is displaying um, the character of God to the people. Certainly not something that is bringing a blessing to them. And yet as soon as you start backpedaling from it, what is the thing that starts hitting you? Well, but you can't just let it go. You can't do nothing. That's the same thing as saying what he did was good and what he did was not good. So we've got to do something. And so you see how you're caught between the two, back and forth. And yet it doesn't tell us. And wouldn't that be great if the last verse of that chapter weren't a question? But the last verse of the chapter were actually the answer that said, here's what they should have done. Wouldn't that be great? That's not what we get. We get this uh, story of this is what happened. And then we're just left hanging with the question. I think uh, as we look at it, though, though they may try to justify what they did, they knew they weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing. And I think it's also important to point out what is missing here. There's not just an answer of what should they have done here that's missing. But you notice there is also God missing? Prayer missing. A lot of times throughout scripture, you'll have something happen and you see that somebody prays and then they act. That's not what happens here, is it? There is no seeking the will of God. And so what they are doing is simply their own will. We ever guilty of that one. And so what they are communicating to people as the people who are supposed to be representing God is nothing more than representing themselves. God is a God of justice who does not leave the guilty unpunished. And yet, he's slow to anger. 
abounding in love, gracious, compassionate. How does all that get brought to bear on a situation like this? How is it that the people were to represent him with justice instead of with vengeance? Well, they didn't ever stop to find out, did they? And so all we have is the record of the vengeance. However, this isn't the last story in the Bible either. And so while this story ends with a question and leaves us kind of caught in the middle, wondering how we are to respond, we do have the rest of the Bible. We even have the New Testament. We even have God in the flesh who talks about this kind of thing. I think we often look at stories where God commands violence in other parts of the Bible, and we say, therefore, that's what we should do. We should just go do violence. But he didn't demand it here. He didn't command it here, did he? No. And in fact, if this is to be the response of the people of God when one of their own is violently victimized, is what happened in their story. But if this is what we're supposed to do, then how should the disciples have responded when their teacher and Lord was violently victimized? Same thing, right? Take it up just like Simeon and Levi. Go get rid of whoever they decide was responsible. Especially when we consider that their teacher and Lord was God himself in the flesh. And yet... Jesus told them in advance how they were to respond when this happened. And it wasn't what they wanted, was it? It wasn't with vengeance. It wasn't with running away either. This is that fight or flight. This is what we see with Jacob, but with his sons. But the way that Jesus tells them to respond the night before he goes to the cross is with love. It's what he tells them to do um, in the way of forgiveness. And he even leads the way then by laying down his life and then praying for the forgiveness of his executioners. That's not our way, is it? Our way is what gets made into movies with lots of explosions. That's our way. That's what we want to do. We're like the kids with the cops who just want to knock it down. <laughs> And we feel that urge so strongly, especially when we feel we're justified in doing it. Because after all, look at what they did. Those are the feelings that we carry. Each of us has those feelings when something wrong is done. But those are the feelings when followed out logically is what leads to terrorism. Think about it. Every terrorist act, the terrorist himself is justified in his mind because look at what they did first. We are not called to be terrorists. We are called to a very different way of being. But neither are we called to be passive. <laughs> and so you say, okay, Simeon and Levi, they get down in that terrorist role. But then you've got Jacob. He does nothing. And we see this as the false choice. And we're like, so we're either supposed to go out there and do something and take charge and take lives. Or I guess we do nothing. Is that what you're saying? No. <laughs> The way of doing nothing isn't open to us either. 
Jesus doesn't tell his disciples to do nothing about the evil and injustice that's around them. But what they are to do is to model a very different way. What they are to do is uh, have this third option. This is where uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about, you know, oh yeah, sure, you don't kill people, but are you angry with them? (laughs) Pat yourself on the back. I haven't murdered anyone in so long. I'm, I'm a great person. But he says, but when you're angry with them, same kind of thing. It's, it's from the heart this is happening. And then from there, he talks about, so if you have uh, a, here, let me get the wording right. This is Matthew chapter 5. And he says, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. And it goes on like that. That there is this principle of reconciliation that is to be at work. Oh my goodness, that's not our way, is it? We live in such a disposable society that if anything gets broken, we don't repair it. That takes too much work. Throw it out, get a new one. So if our relationships get broken, that's fine. There are plenty of people. Throw it out, get a new one. If our family starts getting broken, that's fine. Throw it out. Get a new one. This is the way we tend to operate. If, um, if anybody does us wrong, then we decide the right thing to do is to get rid of them one way or another. What Jesus says is, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that there's this thing that's broken between you and somebody else, It is more important for you to get it right with them than it is to bring your gift to God. That means it's kind of a high priority for him, isn't it? This way of reconciling is a big deal with Jesus. We we read some of uh, 2 Corinthians 5 earlier, but this is what we'll read again next week, um, where it says, All... From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are, therefore, Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. With all of this in mind, we think back to that situation in Genesis 34, and we say, okay, so what should they have done? And the short answer is, I don't know. Aren't you glad you came today? I don't know the specifics, but I do know in general terms what they ought to have been about. And here are some of the things. One, they should have been praying about it. (laughs) That's something we don't see them doing. Jacob and his sons should have been praying about, okay, what do we do in this situation? We know what we feel like doing. That's probably not what we should be doing. (laughs) 
What should we be doing? Two, how is God leading us in a way to deal with a situation that both addresses the need for justice, but also the need for reconciliation between these two groups of people that where there is now a serious schism. There is a huge break because of what has been done. Sin has been committed against Jacob's family. How does that get healed? What does that look like? Who is it that needs to um, make the first step in making that happen? I will say with the um, situation that the uh, Simeon and Levi propose, Shechem's response almost makes it seem like he would be open to something like this. Don't know for sure, but he says things like, you make the price as high as you like, and I will pay it. And then they say, I want you to cut certain things off your body. And he's like, done. I mean, that seems like he's willing to go the distance on making things right between them. He knows that he has done what should not be done. But how could they have taken an action that would have actually healed the relationship between the communities rather than destroy it permanently? Because when we think back, not just to this story, but the whole of the Bible, isn't that what God's doing with us? Where we have so violated what should have been done again and again and again. And yet what we see from him is justice, yes, but also mercy and compassion and forgiveness and a slowness to anger. Why? Not that justice wouldn't be accomplished, but so that relationships could be healed, that we could be made right with God again. Yes, it's going to take a pretty big sacrifice. One that only God can make, and he did. But as he does that, it then calls us to represent him in this world, much like Abraham's family was called to be a blessing in the way they were to represent him back then, and they failed. We find ourselves doing similar things today, representing not God, but just our own desires. And in doing so, not giving God a good name that he deserves. My guess is you will still have questions after this morning. There's a lot to unpack here that we haven't even touched. We can keep the conversation going, though. (laughs) Keep talking about these kinds of things. But I also am guessing that this week, entirely possible that you find yourself in a situation where you want to do something or you want to do nothing. And neither of those is what ought to be done. And so I will be praying for you, for myself, that as we find ourselves in these situations, we will know what to do, starting with prayer. Praying even the Lord's Prayer Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Praying that we would have the wisdom to do what ought to be done and the courage to actually carry that out in a way that represents God well in this world.
In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.